Today, I'm excited to have on the podcast the journalist Emma Green. Emma Green is a staff writer for The Atlantic. She has covered in the last few years some of the biggest stories uh, going on in the world with a particular focus, I would say, on religion. She's, I think, one of the fairest and most incisive and in-depth journalists out there. Uh, She has covered everything from uh, the aftermath of the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh, which may be one of her best pieces, just really bringing the reader present with the grief of of the Jewish community there in Pittsburgh, all the way to contentious issues like abortion, religious liberty, uh, as well as the voting patterns and sort of ideas around evangelicals and politics. Emma was kind enough to join me today. I think you'll find this to be a fascinating conversation with one of the leading journalists today. Here's our conversation with Emma Green. Emma, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. So I've been a big fan of your work for a long time uh, in The Atlantic. And so before we talk about some of the things that you cover, religion, politics, and the nexus of both of those things, and some of the issues we want to talk about, the media and all that, I'd just love to hear first just kind of how you got into journalism. You know, was this something you always wanted to do, something you kind of decided to do, you know, in college or is like, what is your pathway into journalism? So I have a funny story in the sense that I stumbled backwards into journalism. Mm. I grew up in a journalism family. Uh, My dad was an editor of a newspaper and my mom was a freelance journalist. And I always thought that I would never want to do journalism because of course, you know, why would I want to follow in the footsteps (laughs) of my parents? Right. But as it, as it turned out, when I was starting to look for jobs, I wanted to be in a job where I could think about big ideas, talk to people, learn, read, write. And basically what I just described is journalism. So I was lucky enough to get a fellowship position at The Atlantic, uh, working on some of our events, and switched over, have been in management, have worked as an editor, and have worked as mm-hmm. a reporter. So mine is sort of a lucky story of my own obstinacy not getting in the way of me being able to ultimately enter journalism and and do this really interesting work. Was there kind of a time where you started, you know, your internship and other things where you're like, you know, I kind of like doing this. Like, I I, I really, this is what I want to do with my life. Yeah, it it definitely clicked. Um, And I think it's just in part because Getting to be a journalist means that you get to learn about a ton of stuff and ask people questions. Mm -hmm. I always say that um, being a journalist for me is just professional cover for the fact that I'm kind of rude and ask people really direct questions in any capacity, whether it's at a party or at a dinner. And now I just have a professional excuse to ask people all the questions (laughs) that I'm, I'm wondering about them. So it really was a fit for me in terms of how I like learning about the world. Yeah, it's so true. I, I love just reading really good journals. And one of the things I like about the work that you do is I feel like that you ask questions that maybe nobody else is asking, like, Here, here's what I'm reading and here's an angle or, or a side to it that no one's really covered. Is that kind of your approach when you think about stories you want to write or things you want to you ask questions about? Um, I'm not so sure if it's directly in contrast to work that other people are doing because I love the work that especially other journalists on the religion mm-hmm. beat do. And I don't think that my work is necessarily totally radically different, but 
for me, I would say stories are all about trying to understand human communities on their own terms, why people choose to be in community with one another, to build fellowships, to be neighbors, to be mm-hmm. friends, and some of the tensions that inevitably enter into those relationships, especially when it comes to politics and when it comes to religion. So mm-hmm. to me, it's, it's more about that. It's trying to understand how people see themselves in their role in the world and how they navigate the inevitable challenges that arise mm-hmm. in that search. Yeah, you wrote a piece in February that I thought was really fascinating about these are the Americans who live in a bubble. Um, mm. And, you know, I think one of the things that as you know, a lot of people are talking about is sort of the increased, you know, self-sorting that people are doing, uh, you know, the sort of tribalizing of our, not just our politics, but our lives. And uh, when you worked on that piece, was there anything that surprised you about the way that Americans seem to be a little bit more isolated uh, in their communities? What what stood out to you when you when you were working on that? Yeah, you know, that piece was built off of a study that the Atlantic did in partnership with the Public Religion Research Institute. And it was all about this question of relationships across lines of difference and sameness, how people felt about meeting people who are unlike them when it comes to race or religion or ideology. And the thing that really stood out to me was answers to this question, how often do you even encounter someone who's different? So this is like the most basic interaction, the grocery store clerk, the person who you see in line at the post office, the person who is sitting next to you uh, at the dinner table, any of these even basic interactions. And we found that on these measures of race, religion, and ideology, roughly a fifth to a quarter of Americans said that they seldom or never encounter people who are unlike them. So that's white people who never meet a black person, that's Mm. people who are Christian who never meet someone of a minority faith, that's Republicans who never meet Democrats and Democrats Mm. who never meet Republicans. And to me, just starting at that basic minimum, not even talking about, are you friends with these people Do you have them in your family? Are you in some sort of community with them, whether it's a religious community or otherwise? It's literally, I'm never even meeting or exposing myself Mm -hmm. to people who are different. That to me was kind of radical because it felt like this clear indication of the limitations on our ability to imagine other people's lives or points Mm -hmm. of view if we're never even meeting someone or being in conversation with someone who's unlike us. And it's so interesting because I remember... I'm old enough to remember the promise of the internet. If you remember, like, mm. it's going to bring people together. It's going to flatten the world. We're going to be able to learn about other cultures and get to know other people. And I don't think any of us envisioned, and I'm not, like, anti-internet. Like, we're here. I don't want to, like, be Amish or anything. But um, um, <laughs> but I don't think any of us envisioned, right, that how uh, what we thought would kind of bring us together in, in a way has almost helped us be more tribal. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was great reporting on this around the time of the 2016 election, how, for example, on Facebook, there's really a red Facebook and a blue Facebook Mm. where people tend to read and engage with political posts that they're already inclined to agree with. And then Facebook will surface more content that is like that. So people who then are, you know, gravitating towards Republican stuff or towards Democratic stuff are more likely to surround themselves with that completely. And 
to me, that's just such a powerful demonstration of the literal echo chambers that get built on the internet and in real life, where people not only don't want to hear something that they disagree with, they actually believe that everybody else in the world has their viewpoint too, and they're, mm. they're not listening to someone who comes from a different perspective. Mm. That is really interesting. I wouldn't say primarily, but you've covered religion uh, quite a bit. I'm curious, like for you, what, what is it that kind of drew you to that beat? What, what fascinates you about covering religion? I think I have the best beat in the world because I get to ask people about their, at times, most deeply held and deeply felt beliefs about what it means to be a person in the world and also what it means to be a community in the world. Um, you know, religion, on the one hand, is unique because it has to do with all of these theological principles that are really at the heart of how people see the world. On the other hand, religion is also a way of understanding how human communities, especially in the United States, work mm -hmm. generally, because these denominational infights or these uh, times of a, of a group standing up for what they believe in, they're just little mini experiments in what democracy is, of people coming together in a group, deciding how to bridge differences with one another, deciding how to collectively govern themselves. So in those two respects, I just think this is an awesome beat for understanding American life and communities all over the world. Yeah, I mean, I happen to think, it, it, this is just my own opinion, I just love reading good good journalism. And I happen to think that the two beats that have the best journalists in my mind, it, it, this is totally showing my bias, but are sports journalism, because I love sports, and religion. Mm. And I feel like religion writers that, are, that spend time on the beat are some of the best journalists because, and correct me if I'm wrong here, there's so much diversity and nuance and variance in terms of religion in America, even, even within specific denominations or or religions. And so you really have to, all the moving parts there, uh, would that accurately describe what it is to cover religion? I would say that what distinguishes religion as a beat from certain other beats is that it's impossible to be on this beat and to not engage with a really wide range of viewpoints. Um, you know, I've talked to colleagues who are on other beats in other newsrooms, and sometimes they say things like, you know, I could never talk to a person who thinks or believes X. And it's the job of the religion reporter to do the basic work of journalism, which is to say, I'm going to talk to people who think or believe X. I'm going to contextualize it. I'm going to try to report accurately and fairly on what they say and give people the tools that they need to interpret it. And that, to me, is what journalism is all about. It's about helping people understand across a wide range of viewpoints and communities what the world around them looks like and ultimately, hopefully, come to feel a little bit less that it's foreign or scary or other, but rather understand that that's part of the range of this country that we live in. Yeah, and w one of the things I always find interesting is when someone who doesn't normally cover religion kind of swoops in and and covers it. And I can always tell some of the nuances are missing. And then, you know, always reading uh, religion journalists on Twitter, sort of eye rolling and saying, okay, you don't know how to cover this. Um, it's kind of funny. One of the best pieces I think you've you've done is when you covered the aftermath of the the shooting at the synagogue in Pittsburgh. Was that one of the oh. hardest hardest stories you had to, to write and put together? I mean, what what is it like covering 
a story so immediately after a tragedy like that? Um, It was really hard. And it was also deeply humbling in the sense that it was very clear to me that this was a big moment for that community and for American Jews and for the country writ large and getting to be present for it as an observer and as a person um, was a, was a big honor. And it was really, really hard to figure out how to do a good job on that story. Um, You know, one of the stories that I, I was able to do was spending time in the Pittsburgh morgue where a group of Jewish, uh, members of the community took turns standing guard over or praying next to near the bodies because they had not yet been released. The FBI had to do uh, the full fullness of their investigation before the bodies could be released to the families. And it's part of a Jewish custom that dead bodies should never be left alone. So members of the community stepped in to take turns to make sure mm-hmm. that there were people with the bodies and they read from the Psalms while they did it. And they sort of, st- they, every time they would turn over, they would tell the next person where in the Psalms they had stopped so that the whole group read through the Psalms sequentially. Mm. And so I got to sit and, and watch as that was happening. And it was really moving and really humbling and kind of, to me, just an extraordinary privilege of my job that I got to be present for this moment that was so small and so local and so born out of particular care that these people have for making sure that the victims of the shooting were well tended to, but also was such a huge consequential moment in, in American life. So I felt really privileged to be able to be present for that. Mm, That was such a poignant piece, I think. I mean, one of the best things I think that journalists can do is help readers be present with their subjects in a way, like you're, you're taking them there in a way. Uh, and I thought that piece really, really was so good that way. Uh, one of the other topics you cover, I mean, you cover, I think, really well, sort of evangelicals and politics and uh, in a way that I think is really fair and, and useful. Are there any things that have surprised you or maybe angles you think maybe the media doesn't see or doesn't cover when it comes to sort of that issue? Um, you know, I would say a few things there, and you and I could probably talk about this forever, media mm-hmm. criticism of <laughs> the way evangelicalism show up in the news. But um, I think number one is reducing anybody who identifies an evangelical or any denomination that identifies as evangelical mm-hmm. to just being political. Um, so much of our coverage of religion, and this is writ large, not just of evangelicals, but I think particularly in this area, is just explicitly about Republicans versus Democrats, who mm-hmm. likes Trump, who doesn't like Trump, um, you know, what bills are being passed on what topics. And that is important. I'm not taking away the importance of politics because I do think it's relevant. Uh, but I also think there's so much going on when you move out of that exclusively political frame and try to understand the lives of these communities as such, just on the surface. Who are they? What are the questions they're asking each other? What are the challenges they're grappling with? What are the big questions within a church or a denomination or a region or across denominations that share some similarities but also have differences? So in that way, I try to not throw away politics because politics are important and I'm a political reporter, but try to understand uh, who people are as people, not just as R's or D's or political actors. Mm. That's really good. And you, you've also covered, I think, 
quite well abortion politics and sort of how that, you know, maybe some of the things that uh, people might not understand about it or might not see about it. And it seems like with the um, legislation proposed in Virginia, then pulled back and some of the stuff passed in New York and places like Vermont, New Mexico, I think, that it's becoming, you know, it seems like that issue is rising again to the surface. Is there anything that surprises you about, about what's going on? And I'm even thinking of like, uh, some of the polls lately that have showed that maybe Americans might be becoming more pro-life or maybe it's it's more divided than people think. What comes to mind when you think about that issue and the way uh, and the way it's playing out? Yeah, I mean, we are in an interesting moment of abortion politics in the sense that it, nothing is ever really new on abortion. It's one of these debates in American life which has kind of, uh, amazingly stayed static in terms of public opinion and its relevance and salience for the 40 plus years since Roe versus Wade. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it has this huge sticking power. And in that sense, there's a lot of echoes and repetitions about the kinds of issues that tend to come up. But on the flip side, we also have somewhat shifting dynamics, especially when it comes to the Democratic Party and how it relates to the question of abortion over time, and especially over the last 10 years, we've seen a real flattening of abortion politics within the Democratic Party and a willingness to engage across a range of views, including people who might identify as Democrat and pro-life. And what you see as a result of that is a willingness to go after and even champion enthusiastically policies that aren't necessarily popular with the broad swath of Americans, or to some people, seem to be way outside of mm-hmm. the sort of expect- acceptable window of, of the abortion debate in the United States. What I really see happening is a bigger and bigger disconnect in how Democrats and Republicans are talking about the abortion issue, and very little oxygen for people who are in that middle space in whatever form that might take. Um, And I just think that just shows how partisan and divided and polarized uh, the abortion question has become in the United States. Yeah, I think think you're right. I mean, I'm fascinated by, I think, Gallup and that last poll that came out with the Knights of Columbus and uh, I forget the the polling outfit and then Fox. They all kind of shared, like you said, it's pretty static, you know, split in the country. But when you start talking about like, making abortion illegal after three months, I was surprised how high the the number was. I think 60% of Americans, men and women, and I think I think it was um, even Democrats, like 60% of Democrats were, would favor that. So it, it just seems there is that disconnect between maybe what you hear sometimes in Washington and maybe where the, where people are. So how that plays out will be will be interesting, I think, over the next, next uh, couple of years. Yeah, especially with 2020 coming up. I do think that this will be an issue to watch with uh, the Democratic primary and how Democrats are are framing their posture. Um, I think you're right that in terms of the rhetoric and the reality of public opinion, there's a huge mismatch there. And I would just say that in my experience covering abortion politics, we often spend a lot of time having conversations about very um, narrow swaths of the abortion debate, instead Mm. of talking about abortion writ large, the morality of it, how people feel about it, what they're comfortable with and what they're not, the debate often gets Mm. narrowed to these these sort of small incremental fights because of the nature of how these politics shake out. So 
definitely, I think the next couple of years, this is going to be an important issue to watch. I want to ask you, too, about a couple of things. One, I think a lot of people have talked about some of the issues within journalism, particularly, you know, how it's hard in terms of local news and making that, you know, funding that and making that profitable and some of the struggles, you know, that journalism outfits are having. And then also just kind of public trust of journalism, how it's sort of gone up and down. What, what are your thoughts on kind of the, the state of journalism or in terms of keeping it, you know, funding, you know, how do we keep good local journalists uh, active and, and some of the, some of those issues? Yeah. So I would say that hands down, the issue that should be most concerning for people who care about media and democracy and the First Amendment is the decline of local news and specifically local newspapers. We see a few really disturbing trends there. The first is the inability of newspapers to uh, create sustainable budgets with a change in the advertising model, um, sort of nationalizing the news, putting a lot of the advertising dollars in the industry towards Facebook and Google. Um, we see corporations and hedge funds gobbling up these local papers and basically stripping them down to the bone so they're not functionally really doing that much reporting. And these corporations and hedge funds are just trying to drain whatever money is left in those papers out of them. And the third thing that we see is, especially when it comes to local television news, the takeover of local stations by uh, large syndicates that often are very partisan. So what that leaves is a local television source that's actually not offering the news in some sort of independent way. And to me, all of this is really devastating because local news is the lifeblood of journalism. It's the people who are pounding the pavement, going out and talking to people in the community, following the PTA meetings and the city council meetings, tracking that local legislation that really has an impact on people's local lives. So I do think national journalism has a sort of different status or a different uh, situation. And I think national journalism is important, but absolutely anybody who cares about their communities and wanting to have accountability and information to be empowered on any side of the political spectrum, they should care about this problem. Mm, that's true. Uh, one of the positive things about journalism, and maybe this is my own observation, but I feel like there's almost like a renaissance of long-form journalism, just, you know, profiles and in-depth coverage of characters and issues. Uh, do you feel like that that's the case? Yeah, I think to a certain extent, um, what has happened in the market is that there's less space for the repeated production of the thing that's the same. So the straight news take from 100 different outlets on the same issue I think there has a lot of demand for stuff that stands apart and that's really in-depth and informative and long-form, often magazine-style journalism gets rewarded for that. Um, the other thing is that I think we will always have a demand for information about the world. People want to know things. They want to understand people. They want to read good writing. And so for long-form journalism, I think the question is, how do you support that kind of work, which is expensive and, and time-intensive, and give people what they want? Make sure that you're still able to match that demand, which is there, and I think will remain constant no matter how much the industry changes. Hmm. Besides your incredibly gifted colleagues at The Atlantic, which I think is putting out great <laughs> stuff, are there one or two or three 
journalists or, or, or people whose bylines, like you're like, I have to, like they're must read. I, I check them every day. I read them every day uh, that you'd recommend. Wow, that's such a hard question because that feels like having to pick from among so, so many people who I admire. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I would say category number one are people who are full-time religion beat reporters. I have so much respect for my colleagues on the beat. This is everybody from Sarah Pulliam Bailey and Michelle Borstein at the Washington Post mm. to Elizabeth Dias at the Times, the people who are at the Religion News Service, um, Emily Miller and Jack Jenkins and a whole lot of other people. So those are always in my mix. Um, I have a lot of journalists who I just love their writing, and they don't necessarily publish as frequently, but when they do publish, I'm always reading their stuff. Um, so this is people like Khalifa Sana at The New Yorker, who writes really interesting things, Taffy Ackner Berdesser, who's at The New York Times Magazine. Um, and then just finally, I always try to keep a diversity of reads. So I am not just out there reading religion news and mainstream coverage. I try to spread out my consumption. So I would answer with a cheat, which is I try to always be reading things from the left and the right, from National Review and from First Things to um, some of the more progressive magazines and really make sure that my perspectives are broad. Mm. I also want to ask you, you know, as you were coming up in your journalism career, was there a journalist that really was kind of a hero to you that you looked up to and said, man, I, I'd really like to be like them, or they really inspired me in the way that they go about their work? <laughs> I've, I have a number of people who I look at their jobs and I think, wow, if only I could do that. And I'm sheepish about sharing who those are. Okay. But I will say that I have benefited over my time, especially at The Atlantic, from the mentorship and guidance of a lot of people who really are world-class journalists. Um, Yoni Applebaum, who mm-hmm. is now our ideas editor, was my editor for a long time. Jeff Goldberg, who's the editor-in-chief of the magazine. Other folks have really spent a lot of time trying to coach me, and I'm extremely lucky for that. Um, this is you know, the biggest gift in the world is to have the advice and mentorship and guidance of people who can uh, who care about me and want to coach me into being a better writer. Mm-hmm. And last question, if someone is listening who is an aspiring journalist, they want to be Emma Green when they grow up, um, <laughs> is there a word of advice that you would you would give to them? Yeah, I would say that it is sometimes dispiriting to look at the journalism industry and wonder about job prospects and that sort of thing. And it's true that it's pretty tough out there, but I would say the only thing that stops people from being journalists or from being writers is not doing it. So if you want to be a journalist, you should start pitching stories. You should start writing, even if it's not for publication, just do the work, do the verb, because that is the best thing you can do to walk you towards potentially having a career in this industry. And you can always make contributions, even if your work balance is uh, balanced across multiple different industries. Mm, that's great advice and a good way uh, to close our conversation. Emma Green, thank you so much for joining me. I want to encourage everyone to follow her on Twitter. We'll post her Twitter uh, handle to read her stuff in the Atlantic. It's always really good, really fair, and just in-depth uh, in a way that is, is, I think, rare. So thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Dan. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. 
You can catch previous episodes on danieldarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster and scheduling by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.